Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we are glad to be joined by Dr. Alistair McGrath. Dr. McGrath is the Andreas Idrius Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford University. Dr. McGrath was an atheist as a teenager, and he discovered Christ while studying chemistry as an undergraduate at Oxford University. And he holds three, count them, three earned doctorates from Oxford in the natural sciences, Christian theology, and intellectual history. Now, Dr. McGrath has a long-standing interest in exploring the relation of science and faith and has published extensively in this field. He is well known for his critique of Dr. Richard Dawkins and for his widely used theology textbooks, among them Christian Theology and Introduction, now in its sixth edition, and his most recent titles are The Territories of Human Reason, Science and Theology in an Age of Multiple Rationalities. Today, we'll dive deeper into the topic of Dr. McGrath's recent lecture, Creation, Redemption, and Wonder, Reflections on the Theological Motivations for the Care of Creation, which was presented during our Goodness of Creation and Human Responsibility conference. This lecture and others from the conference will be available through our website. Dr. McGrath, thank you for your excellent lecture, and thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to us in this after conversation. Well, it's great to be with you. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about your lecture, uh, because you had so many good points. Uh, in your lecture, you spoke powerfully about the role of awe and wonder uh, when we're thinking about the beauty of creation. What exactly is this experience? I mean, uh, what is it? Is there a natural explanation for this sensation? Well, I think it's basically a, a sense of intellectual pain as you realize your mind is not able to take in something amazing and you experience almost like intellectual discomfort uh, in mm. sense I can't take it in and yet intellectual joy because it's clearly something so exciting and so wonderful. So I guess the question would be, you know, where does this take us? I mean, obviously, you could offer a purely naturalist explanation for this, um, but I think that's inadequate. I think there's no doubt that there's a natural mechanism here. But I think in terms of we ask where it comes from and where it takes us, then we're in a very different area. Because if you believe we, we bear God's image, then if you like, we have a sort of receptivity towards the disclosure of God in, well, in the natural world around us. And so for me, what I find is that a sense of awe or amazement at the beauty and wonder of nature is, if you like, the initiation of a process that doesn't stop there. It, it, in effect, it's like a signpost. I recognize this experience as a signpost, which is pointing somewhere, and I want to go where that is pointing. Yes, uh, and your point that you made in the lecture resonated with me, and it, it made me wonder, uh, are we the only creatures who experience awe or amazement? And the reason why I ask that, I think of as a boy, my family had a pet dog, and I can remember one after or one evening watching a sunset 
And as I was looking at this beautiful sunset, I noticed our pet dog was also sitting up, looking at the sunset, just staring at the sun. And I was wondering at that moment, is he experiencing anything like what I'm experiencing? Is he looking at it with amazement also? So what do you think? Do you think other creatures uh, have that sense of awe at all? I wouldn't be surprised if they do. I, I've seen cats staring at the moon. You know, again, there's something draws them to that. I guess what you and I have is the added blessing of being able to say, I think I can figure out what this means, you know, mm. <laughs> which is a, a great blessing. Yeah, so I think that's where perhaps, as you say, uh, this is where, um, or perhaps a manifestation of the Imago Dei, the fact that we're in God's image and therefore these kinds of things resonate with us. You, you have a very interesting quote uh, from Sir Isaac Newton, uh, where he says, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all around undiscovered before me. So what does this, does, it seems like that both the natural sciences and the Christian faith encourage us in this way to have that sensation. What is it that, what, what were you getting at? What do you think Newton was getting at whenever he, he made that quote? Well, it, it's an authentic quote from Newton, but it's not in any of his published works. In effect, it was a quote he gave towards the end of his life when someone said to him, look, uh, what do you want to pass on to others? What, 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 what have you learned you'd like to tell others about? And he gave that quote. And I, I resonate with it for two reasons. First of all, it is about contextualizing the natural world. It's a gateway. In other words, it's real, it's important, and yet there's something that's, that's beyond it. And I think that's a very important point to make. But also, I think, helps me realize how the natural sciences can go wrong. Because if you think about it, it's saying, look, I, I divert myself by looking at smoother pebbles or prettier shells. You look at the stones, you look at the pebbles, and you miss the bigger picture mm. and so what newton is getting at there is respecting individual bits of that big picture but seeing the big picture as well yes the pebble the shell but the ocean as well and that's why i think science and faith really come together very very well because science is very very good at focusing on particularities but uh, faith helps us to look for that bigger picture which helps to put them in their proper place so for me newton is really saying here's how science can go wrong you become so preoccupied with individual aspects of creation you miss the bigger picture and that i think is a very important point to get into our modern cultural discussion of these issues so it would be a, the classic example of missing the forest because of the trees. Exactly right. This is a beautiful world, and it does fill us with awe and wonder. Uh, it's quite glorious. And yet the message of creation is not one of unmitigated aesthetic beauty. This seems to be the point that Darwin was getting at whenever he wrote to Richard Hooker and and made the classic uh, devil's chaplain quote. Let me, let me quote it, where he said, what a book a devil's chaplain might write on this clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low and horridly cruel works of nature. What do you say to perhaps the new atheists who they tend to focus on nature's horror and nature's cruelty? Uh, how, do, how, do we, how do we fit that into this to this uh, understanding of 
God's glorious world? Well, I think there are several things I'd want to say. First of all, um, the new atheists have no explanation for that horror or cruelty at all. The response is, that's just the way it is, get used mm -hmm. to it. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I need more than that. That, that doesn't help me at all. Um, and th that is why I think we need a deeper explanation. And of course, Christianity is saying, well, look, there is this um, darker side to nature, and that's very important that we're absolutely clear about that. But if we bring a theological lens to bear on this, we're talking about God entering into God's creation, not in its nice bits, but in its dark bits. If you think about it, I mean, God in Christ experiences pain, suffering, rejection, death, all these things. So suffering now becomes a means of redemption. It's a commitment of God to entering into the creation, even in its darkest parts, and give us a vision, a hope, for what one day will happen to the created order. So if you like, it allows us to see things in a new way. But here's the next point I want to make, and this is really important. We look at the natural world and we don't just say, hey, that's the way it is, because as, as Christians, we're given this wonderful vision of a new creation. And so in effect, we look at our creation and say, well, we think we know what God wants us to do with this. We need, we're called on to make this world a better place to deal with suffering. And so for me, this would be a very important point to say, it. in effect, this acts as a motivation for doing something about the suffering of the world. So if I hear you right, it, it, the very fact that we react with either wonder or revulsion, depending on what it is in particular we're looking at, both reactions indicate that there's something more something deeper that's going on than simply we interacting with natural processes. Uh, so in other words, um, aren't evolutionary psychologists hard pressed to find this ex, uh, uh, to, to find an explanation that explains this only in terms of natural selection? I mean, why would there be a natural process that would induce a sense of awe or wonder? Or like you said, or revulsion? Well, these are very difficult questions, and I'm not sure evolutionary psychology has the answer. Let me ask you another one, which is a very good one. I mean, we, we have this remarkable mathematical ability. Newton, for example, was able to, you know, predict the planet's motions. But from an evolutionary perspective, we just need to, <laughs> to be able to survive. Why do we have this massive uh, overcapacity mathematically? One answer might be so we're able to discern these deeper patterns and reflect them where they take us. I think that's a very important point to make. So I find myself puzzled by evolution psychology because in effect, you know, you can interpret these things more or less in any way you like. There's no empirical check. There's no way of saying, hey, you're over-interpreting this. So I find evolution psychology very interesting, but it does seem to me to be asking unanswerable questions and then answering them in their own particular way from their own particular perspective. Yes, I, I find evolutionary psychology very interesting. Also, I think they exhibit a great deal of creativity, uh, uh, you know, in some of the answers uh, in which they come up with. But as you point out, uh, how does one actually verify that this is, in fact, what's happening? One gets the sensation every once in a while that you're listening to a just so story, uh, that, that they've arrived you know, I think, well, that's fascinating, but are you sure that that's really the, the, the reason why this is the way it is? 
Well, it's not just once in a while, I'm afraid. It's rather a lot of the time. And you almost have the impression you have these predetermined conclusions and everything's being fitted around them. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, um, you quote William James, and it's a fascinating quote. You say that religion, he says, religion is about faith in the existence of an unseen order of some kind in which the riddles of the natural order may be found or explained. Um, this faith or this belief that, or this general confidence that there is some type of underlying order, this seems to be fairly broad, not just believers. It seems like even uh, unbelievers uh, expect there to be some kind of underlying order that they are able to discover. Like you said, the scientists seem to have a great deal of confidence in mathematics to make predictions. At the very same time, philosophical naturalists reject strongly any notion of teleology. Uh, how do they do this? Uh, are they being simply inconsistent or am I, am I making a category mistake? No, I think you're, you're raising a perfectly valid concern. If you read most philosophers of biology these days, uh, and Smyre and others, they would say, look, um, earlier generations said, get rid of teleology from biology. How can we do that when it's so obvious that biological organisms have teleological orientations? They have goal-directed behavior. You can't ignore this. Teleology is built into the natural order. We're looking for explanations. We're looking for goals we can achieve. So in effect, if you're a biologist, you've got to recognize that's the way things are. So I have to say I'm, I'm puzzled by this refusal to engage teleology. We could, I think, have a, a good discussion about whether you're talking about an artificially imposed teleology or something that emerges naturally from the, um, from the world around us. But certainly there's all this evidence of purpose and direction, which is very, very difficult to ignore. You have some like Stephen Jay Gould, who seemed to think that there was no kind of convergence whatsoever. And then you have others like Simon Conway Morris, who seem to almost have a platonic understanding of, of the, the, the evolutionary processes. Do you think uh, that conversation, that debate that seems to be going on uh, in the biological sciences, do you see anything fruitful coming from that? Do you see, the, do you see some possibilities in the biological uh, world that perhaps there can be a recognition of some kind of teleology? I think that it's a very interesting conversation. It doesn't prove anything, but it certainly is very suggestive. So, for example, Simon Common Morris is saying, look, um, you may zigzag around, but in the end, you're going to get to the goal. In other words, you know that, that you cannot um, deduce from a non-linear progression towards a goal that there's no goal to get to. The point is you get there in the end. So I think that, that it is keeping open a very interesting conversation, but I don't think it solves anything. Yeah, yeah. But then again, uh, that's not what we're asking them to do, are we? Uh, if, yeah, we're, I think a reasonable faith is, is, uh, is a victory. So you point out, in fact, I think that's one of the points that you, you make very well in your lecture, is that you point out that even though the order of creation can be argued, uh, used to argue for, for God's existence, if that's all that you do, you, you miss out on a lot that creation's beauty is intended to teach us. I mean, I mean, what did the psalmist have in mind when he, he spoke of the heavens declaring the glory of God? He isn't simply saying there is a God. 
he's he's saying there's something to learn about God, does he not? I'm sure that's right. I think the psalmist is talking to people who already know there's a God there. And I think what the psalmist is saying to the people who read him is, you, you haven't adequately grasped this. There is so much more to God. You need to take in God's glory, God's vastness, the amazing things God has done in creation. And so if you'd like, the way I put it is that um, for the psalmist, the, the night sky offers an imaginative enhancement of our understanding of God. It invites us to go deeper, to go further, to in effect enrich our vision of God. And I find that helpful because there's always a danger. We think of God in cognitive terms as an idea. And the psalmist is saying, look at the night sky. When you look at that, you're not going to think of God as a mere idea. It's in effect someone vast who brought this into existence. And that's a very different way of thinking. Well, in the middle of your lecture, you interact with the writings of Richard Dawkins. And uh, you, you note how he belittled the medieval view of the universe as being pokey. That's the word he used. Um, you made the point that they were simply believing the cosmologists of their day and that science changes. I mean, think about it. A hundred years ago, scientists didn't believe in the Big Bang uh, hypothesis. Or they don't seem to even show any kind of awareness of the fine-tuning of the universe. What does this tell us about the way science operates? It tells us that science offers us what scientists believe to be the best interpretation of the available evidence. And the danger is that scientists, if you like, freeze the scientific understanding and say the way things are right now is the way things really are. But, you know, if you wind backwards by 100 years, then the universe has always been here. You know, if we wind back a thousand years, then the, the Earth's the center of everything. The key point is that science is progressing. And that is very important because if you're a scientific positivist, you have a big problem which is you cannot predict what science is going to think in the future because you can't predict what the evidence is going to be. And so it reminds us, I think, that science is on a journey and you cannot simply say that the way things we see things now are the way things really are. And I think many scientists do find that uh, a disconcerting thought. For example, uh, Michael Polanyi, who was a chemist, who um, turned philosopher was very, very clear. He says, look, I, I'm sure I believe certain things to be true that are wrong scientifically, but I'm not sure which ones they are. So it is a very, very difficult position, but you can live with this as long as you don't overstate the, the, the ability of science. Uh, you have to say that the way we see things now might be right, but then again, it might not be. We need to be humble. We need to be cautious here. And the problem is Richard Dawkins hopelessly overstates. And I think that really he does need to rethink a lot of things for that reason. Now, you use the word positivist. And in your lecture, you warn against uh, naive scientific positivism. Uh, for our listeners' sake, could you give a working definition of what you mean by that and perhaps give an example so they'll understand uh, exactly, exactly. What, it, what it is we're talking about. Well, there are a number of ideas that converge here. One of them is that science is able to prove its theories. So in effect, scientific statements have the status of facts, not opinions. And I think that, that's a key thing, because certainly when I was an atheist myself back in my teenage years, I, I took this position myself. I, I was a sort of scientific positive atheist. And it was just obvious to me that science gave a total description of our world that had proved everything it believed. And that contrasts, of course, with religion. 
nowadays, of course, I, I don't believe that anymore because it's so obviously wrong. But it was so attractive, so simple that it drew me into its way of thinking. And that's what Richard Dawkins is today. So for me, positivism is science tells us exactly the way the world is. It tells us in a way that's proven and it eliminates any other explanation. So for example, a positivist would say, science gives us the only answer to a question. I would say, well, maybe science gives us part of the answer, but we need a bigger answer. And so there are other things need to be brought into this discussion as well. For example, you've talked about the idea of purpose. Well, science can't do that. But scientific observations do not, in effect, negate the idea of purpose. We can bring these ideas together to give a richer vision of the way things are. In your years of interacting with Richard Dawkins, and I, I guess there for a number of your, for a number of years, both of you uh, were at Oxford. You're still at Oxford, and, but I guess he's retired now. In your years of interacting with him, have you detected any sense of growth or change or development in him or his thinking? Or is he simply impervious? I haven't, I have to say. And people who know him better than I do haven't detected this either. I mean, I mean, I may get him wrong. If I, if I do, I'm very sorry. But he seems to have painted himself into a corner that, in effect, he's, he's in effect established his reputation of himself as a hard-hitting scientific atheist. And that means he can't qualify that he can't back away from anything and so in effect he he really is seen by an awful lot of people as a kind of almost like museum piece this is the way scientists used to think 50 years ago and they've moved on but he hasn't so it is it's a rather sad spectacle in many ways it is kind of someone who's beached in a way of thinking that's 50 years old and everyone else has moved on i always thought it was fascinating the first time i read uh, Stephen Jay Gould referred to Dawkins as a fundamentalist. And I thought that was a very interesting critique to be made by a fellow atheist. Uh, uh, and so uh, I thought that was quite intriguing. Then in your lecture, you make an important point, and perhaps maybe this is uh, the main point, uh, about the relationship or the connection between creation and redemption. And this connection, as you point out, can be seen in the healing ministry of Jesus. What was the point of Jesus restoring sight? I think this is a very important aspect of the Christian doctrine of salvation. I mean, in effect, what we're saying is that human beings as part of creation are damaged or disfigured or wounded by sin. And that applies to the way in which we see our world, we see ourselves, and of course, see God as well. And so if you like, what, what we need is someone to heal us so that we can see properly, see God, see the world as it really is. And of course, look at ourselves and see ourselves as we really are, stripping away all these distortions and uh, myths. So for me, this is a very important point. The part of the Christian understanding of salvation is a healing of our ability to see the world. So we see ourselves, for example, as sinners who need God's grace, who are being called to do some very exciting things. But it also means that as a result of the, the work of God's grace, we see the creation in a different way. We don't see it as a nature that we can dominate. It is God's creation 
entrusted to us and we are those who are called to care for it. So if you'd like, it's given us a whole different perspective on who we are, what we're meant to be doing, and also the status of this world in which we live. If you like, it's not ours, it's God's, and God has entrusted it to us for safekeeping. Uh, you, you make the contrast so very well whenever you give examples of consistent philosophical naturalists, I think you mentioned Rosenberg as an example, who argue that, that science shows us there is no God, uh, and if there's no God, then hence there's no purpose, and if there's no purpose, then therefore there's no moral sense of right and wrong. Let's look at what has happened to societies that have tried to look at, uh, tried to live by that type of dogma. It's not gone well, and, and yet I think most of us don't want to live that way. And if we don't want to live that way and simply can't, what does that say to us about the limits of scientific knowledge? I think it says a lot. But let's begin by looking at what I think is a very important question, which is Rosenberg's argument that science is the most reliable form of knowledge we have. Well, we have a number of kinds of knowledge. We have a number of tools that help us to gain knowledge. If we like, we have multiple toolkits for investigating different areas of our lives. Rosenberg, if you like, seems to me to be saying this, hey, science works really well in certain areas, let's just use it for everything. And it, it, it's very, very difficult to understand that. For example, imagine I've got a thermometer in my hand. I might say, hey, it tells temperatures really accurately. Let's use it for everything. For example, determining what the meaning of life is. So here's my thermometer. I'm looking at it. It doesn't tell me the meaning of life. So there is no meaning of life. In effect, what you are doing is using a tool designed for one purpose, something completely different. And when it gives you a zero result, you say there's nothing there. It's well, I'm sorry, it's just it's just mad. Basically, what's happening here is that you are in effect misusing a tool, and there are other tools available for looking at questions like morality and the meaning of life. And so Rosenberg and other I'm afraid, in my view, are simply denying us access to the tools which will tell us the answers to these really deep questions we need to know and that science can't answer. And here's the important point. This is not a criticism of science. I'm just saying science is science. That's great. But we need moral philosophy. We need theology. We need other things to help us deal with other questions that really matter to us as human beings. Yes. You know, there at the end of the conference, one of the conference speakers made the point that in the end, either life or death will have the final word. Uh, and I, I, I think I get his point that, uh, I mean, no matter, I mean, if, you're, if you are a, a philosophical naturalist, then the end of the story is, is that death wins. So does that mean that philosophical naturalism entails nihilism? Or in my view, in my view, that that is the way it goes, because in effect, what you are doing is you are limiting reality to what your research method discloses and philosophical nihilism, no meaning, no purpose, no value. That's very much what Richard Dawkins is saying. But as a Christian, I say I have other tools at my disposal and they give me a very different way of looking at it. Uh, and so for me, I look at the same world as my philosophical nihilist friend, but we see that world in very different ways. His ends in death and continues in meaninglessness. 
For me, the world is studded with signs of a creator God who loves us. We begin a relationship with God now, which will not be ended by death. And that's so important. That's about hope. And therefore, for me, Christianity, if you like, is able to give us a lens which is not just realistic, but because it, it takes God into account, is positive, is hopeful. It gives us a reason not simply to live, but a reason to hope as well. Here's where it seems that uh, the resurrection of Christ makes all the difference, because uh, the living Christ says that um, he has the final word, and because he lives, uh, life uh, has the final word. Uh, Dr. McGrath, thank you so much for, uh, again, taking part in the conference. Uh, it, your, your talk was crucial for setting the tone and helping with the agenda, and also thank you for taking part in this podcast. Uh, thank you so much, and we appreciate uh, you joining us today. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I've greatly enjoyed our conversation. <laughs>